0: And we saw last week as how Paul loose past his introduction, there was one thing he wanted the church at Philippi to know right off the bat, and that was adversity advances the gospel. We saw how Paul was under house arrest and he was bound to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, But despite the persecution he was facing, Paul wanted the Philippians to know, and Paul wants us as readers to know, to live with confidence with the reality that the adversity we face actually advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this week, we're going to see Paul continue to flesh out uh, that idea as we move through the rest of this paragraph of Philippians chapter number one. So let me encourage you, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, turn to Philippians chapter number one. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we will jump into our study this morning. While you're turning there, though, I do want to make an announcement. Uh, Starting Thursday, September 23rd, we're going to have a few classes that we're offering here at the church. One of those classes is called The Marriage Course. It's a seven-week class. It'll start Thursday the 23rd at 7 o'clock. It'll be a great class that'll encourage and strengthen your marriage. If you go to fresnochurch.info click on the announcements tab, you'll see a link where you can sign up for that and let me encourage you to do that as soon as you can. We're also going to offer a class called Gentle and Lowly, looking at Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. He said in the Bible that, come to me, I am gentle and lowly. And so we'll spend 10 weeks unpacking what that looks like. That'll also start Thursday, September 23rd at 7 o'clock. You can go to that same place at fresnochurch.info and sign up for that class as well. Well, hopefully you're in Philippians chapter number one. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we will jump into our Bible study this morning. Paul and Timothy, the Bible says, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, and this is what we looked at last week, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? (laughs) Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, Because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in what accordance, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let's pray, and then we will jump into our study this morning. Lord, once again, we come to you, we open up your word, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would anoint your word. Lord, we don't need to hear from me, but we need to hear from you. It's not a man's word that changes hearts and lives, it's your word. And so I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that it would be good news to the poor. I pray that it would heal the brokenhearted, that it would be liberty to those that are captive. Lord, I pray that it would proclaim your favor on your people. I pray that it would be a comfort to those who mourn, a crowd of beauty instead of ashes, Lord. And I pray that as a result of being in your word, like what Psalm 1 says, we would be trees in your righteousness, standing strong in faith because of grace. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, it would speak to us and it would give us exactly what we are needing. I pray that it would answer questions that we may be wrestling with. But ultimately, Lord, and above all, I pray that it would point us to Jesus. I pray that in your word, we would see the word and that we would live our lives in such a way that reflect your glory and reflect your worth because of all that you have done for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we ended our study last week looking at how, when Christ is magnified, the church grows in her boldness. We saw this in verse number 14. Paul said, there are some who are seeing my imprisonment, and they're being inspired to preach the word even more fearlessly. Uh, But unfortunately, as we're going to see, not everybody that was preaching in this season here in Rome was preaching with pure motives. And Paul addresses this with the Philippians, which leads us to our first thought this morning, Paul is going to address this contrast of motivations. If you look back at verse uh, 14 through 17, the Bible says, Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment, and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, though, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And so here what we see is two camps are kind of forming in response to Paul being put in prison. We looked at the first camp last week. This was a group of men who grew in their boldness, and they were fearlessly proclaiming the word of God. The Bible says this group was driven by love because they knew God's hand was on Paul. They knew Paul was in jail for Christ. He was appointed to defend the gospel primarily in this season by being imprisoned. Here in Rome, they knew that this was God's will. They knew Paul was appointed to do this. This was God's anointing on Paul's life. And so they see that, and then they are emboldened in their faith, and they are proclaiming, as verse uh, 15 says, out of goodwill. Now this word from which goodwill is translated in verse 15, it means this kindly intent. It means benevolence. So when Paul says they're preaching out of goodwill, it means they're being sincere. They are wanting the best for the people that they are preaching to. This word is used by the angelic hosts in Luke chapter number 2 as they are proclaiming the Savior's birth. When they say, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It's the same word. Jesus used this word in Luke chapter 12 when he said, it's your Father's good pleasure, it's your Father's goodwill to give you the kingdom. Paul used this word to describe his passion for, to see the Jews come to salvation in Romans chapter number 10. So to preach the gospel out of goodwill then, It means to preach it out of a sincere desire for the well-being of others. These men were preaching because they loved Jesus, they loved Paul, and they genuinely wanted the people that were hearing their message to come to faith in Christ. They weren't doing it for their own selves, they were doing it for the good of those that were hearing. These guys love Jesus, they love Paul, and they want to see his ministry continue. So they boldly proclaimed the word of God. Paul actually modeled this for us at Thessalonica after he left Philippi. When we started this series, we looked at how the church was started in Acts chapter number 16. After he left Philippi, he went to a city called Thessalonica. And Paul told the church uh, at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter two through verse six. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. So Paul is modeling how we can respond fearlessly in the face of opposition. He goes on and says, For your exhortation didn't come from error. The preaching that we preach to you did not come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines the heart. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, he says. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. And so what Paul is modeling here, and what we see these people in uh, Philippians chapter one, they're responding to the way Paul modeled this. And these men, they were inspired by Paul's example that we see in 1 Thessalonians. They were inspired by Paul's calling. They knew he was appointed by God to defend the gospel. And they were inspired by Paul's imprisonment. And so out of love for God and a love for other people, they fearlessly proclaimed the gospel. And this models for us our motivation for serving God. A love for God and a love for others with no ulterior motives, just a sincere desire to see people reached, to see people helped by the good news of Jesus. Now we also see that there were some men here who were preaching the gospel but had wrong motives. Uh, the next verse to, or the text tells us that they were preaching from a place of envy, they were jealous. They were preaching from a place of rivalry. They had selfish ambitions, ulterior motives. They weren't being sincere when they were preaching. They were trying to cause Paul trouble, the Bible says. Now, we don't know exactly what what they were envious of. Were they envious of Paul's ministry success and the influence he had, maybe? Were they from a rival group of Christians? I mean, they were preaching from a place of rivalry, the Bible tells us. Clearly, these guys were not fans of Paul. Maybe they thought he was too brash and deserved to be in prison. Gee, Paul, if you're a little more gracious, maybe you wouldn't have got thrown under house arrest. So perhaps they started preaching because now they're going to show everybody this is the right way to do it. Paul did it wrong. Paul was too brash. Now he's in jail. But we're going to do it the right way. They were preaching from this place of rivalry, thinking that they were better. We know the Bible tells us they had selfish ambitions. The Greek word here, the Greek phrase for selfish ambition means contention partisanship or a a fractious spirit. They were in a different camp, quote unquote, than the Apostle Paul was, and so they were preaching in a way to put him down. This word means, it it comes from a word that means they were working for hire. That's what this phrase selfish ambition means. So in other words, they were preaching for what they could get out of it. They didn't have a sincere desire to see people reached with the gospel, to see people helped through the word of God. They were preaching for what they could get out of it. Perhaps they were preaching to make themselves look good. They didn't sincerely care about the people that they were preaching to. We know they were trying to cause Paul trouble because Paul flat out tells us that. Many believe they were trying to uh, shame Paul by shaping public opinion against him. Now, even though some of the specifics are not exactly clear, it would seem that these envious preachers are using Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to tear him down and to stir up trouble and elevate themselves. Now, what's interesting, and what I think is a good cause for some self-reflection and maybe some even self-inspection, is the fact that even though, even when they were preaching truth, they were still driven by what was wrong. They were proclaiming Christ. They were preaching the gospel. This reminds us that it's, it's possible to have the right message, but the wrong motivation part of why Paul could rejoice, even though these guys were trying to cause him trouble, was the fact that they were preaching the right message. They were proclaiming Christ. They were preaching the gospel. So just because we can correctly articulate something doesn't mean that truth that we can articulate has really affected our lives. Just because we can clearly spell out the love of God does not mean we are being driven by the love of God. These guys have the right message. I mean, we know that. Paul says that. Paul spoke very harshly against people who preached a false gospel. I mean, you read Galatians chapter number 1, verses 8 and 9. Twice, Paul says, a curse be on those that preach a false gospel. But even if we were an angel, he said, from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, curse be on them. Even if an angel comes down and preaches a false gospel, Paul says, a curse be on them. He says, as we had said before, I'll now say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse be on him. So we know these guys aren't wrong. We know they're not in error in what they are articulating. But what this shows us is our doctrine does matter. We need to rigor- rigorously pursue what does the Bible actually say. We need to guard our minds and guard our church from false teaching. Big truth helps no one. But we cannot simply rest on having a correct doctrinal statement, as important as that is. And we should pursue truth rigorously defend truth but we also need to allow that truth to by grace through faith change us and conform us into the image of Christ now apparently these guys Paul's talking about in Philippians 1 they had the right message they were saying the right things but they weren't doing it from a right motive this demonstrates to us that if Christ is truly being preached but the motives are wrong the recipients of that message can still be blessed and helped. Now I know many of us may be wrestling with, was the work God did in my heart through the preaching of his word here real? And this, this verse, this passage can actually be a tremendous comfort. If you've been struggling this past, much, this past month with, man, was what God did in my heart, was that, was that real? Now questioning what was real and what wasn't real is very understandable right now. But if the Spirit of God worked in your heart through the Word of God, you can rest assured that was real. We can receive God's Word in faith, even if it is not proclaimed in faith. So long as it is true to God's Word. This is why Paul said, I'm I'm rejoicing. These guys are trying to cause trouble for Paul, but they were advancing the very thing Paul dedicated his life to. And so even though they weren't preaching in faith, they had the wrong motives. Paul's like, eh, I'll rejoice. What's it matter? Christ is being proclaimed. And the word of God will not return void. Now, does this mean our motives for preaching don't matter if we have the message right? Absolutely not. Our motives 100% matter. In fact, in chapter number 2, Paul basically tells us, hey, don't be like these guys. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not out only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. So Paul tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Our motives matter. Clearly, when you read this passage, these guys aren't the good guys, quote-unquote. But Paul can rejoice even though they had wicked motivations because the gospel was still going forward. So as Paul continues to unpack how the gospel is advanced through his adversity... He addresses these people that are preaching from a wrong motivation. And he encourages the Philippian church by showing them that these guys are not actually hurting his mission. Because I'm sure that as the Philippians were hearing about these guys, they were concerned for Paul. They loved Paul. But Paul's encouraging these church saying, hey, look at guys, these guys actually aren't hurting my mission. They're actually advancing my mission. They're advancing the very thing that I have dedicated my life to. And so because the gospel is being proclaimed, we see Paul makes a decision, which leads us to our second thought this morning, Paul makes a decision to rejoice. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this, I rejoice. Because Christ is being proclaimed, Paul says, I'm making the decision to rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I will continue to make that decision to rejoice. Why? Because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Christ. Despite the fact that he was chained to a Roman guard. Despite the fact that people were trying to cause him harm through preaching the gospel. I mean, what a bizarre, what a bizarre thing. But despite that, Paul says, I am going to rejoice. Because in the middle of all this, Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being magnified. Christ is being lifted up. So I will rejoice. He then doubles down on his decision to rejoice. By saying, I will continue to rejoice. This is not just a one and done decision. I am continually making the decision to rejoice in God. Because I know God is using this adversity to advance his mission. And like Paul, our confidence and joy can never be minimized by adversity. When we rightfully view suffering through the lens of the gospel, we too can double down on our decision to rejoice because we can rest assured that God is at work. Yes, our circumstances may be a mess. Yes, things may seem turned upside down. But we can rest. We can have confidence. We can know. We can make the decision to rejoice because we know God is going to use this to advance his mission. We know that difficulties allow us to experience God in deeper ways. This is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. This is not blind or naive optimism. This is not pain-denying suppression. This is gospel-rooted faith. A gospel-rooted, faith-enabled decision to rejoice, not ignoring the problems, but recognizing those problems are actually going to advance the kingdom of God. And because of that greater reality, I can rejoice. It's confident that God is bigger than suffering, and God has a purpose in it. We can rejoice where we rejoice in what we value. When we lose something that we value, there is naturally grieving and pain. Paul isn't ignoring the reality of his situation, but he's leading his emotions to rejoice in what he values more than anything, and that's Jesus, because Jesus is worthy. Pastor John MacArthur said, Paul's example of selfless humility shows us that the worse circumstances are, the greater the joy can be. When the seemingly secure things in life begin to collapse, when suffering and sorrows, he says, increase, believers should be drawn into ever deeper fellowship with the Lord. This is why Paul says, I can rejoice. In spite of all this, I can rejoice. Now, as you look at verse 19, Paul uh, explains another source of his decision to rejoice he is relying on the prayers of the Philippians and the help and strength of the Holy Spirit to rejoice. And it seems like as he's writing verse number 19, he's actually reflecting on Job and the life of Job and what Job said in Job 13, 15 through 16. Uh, The first part of Job 13, 15 is a very well-known verse. Job says, even if God kills me, I will hope in him. (laughs) I will still defend my way before him. Yes, he says, this will result in my deliverance. For no godless person can appear before him. Now, the part of Philippians 1.19 where Paul says, God's going to use this for my salvation, it's actually a direct quote from verse 16 from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the question for us is, what does Paul mean when he says, this will lead to my salvation? If you're like me, you first read that, and you're like, hey, Paul, I thought you were already saved. What's going on, man? (laughs) Are you saved or are you not saved? Why is this going to lead to your salvation? Well, the Greek word for salvation here is the word soteria. And it is overwhelmingly throughout the scripture translated as salvation, referring to our spiritual salvation. Now, given the context of what Paul's talking about and a host of other scriptures, we can confidently say Paul is not referring to his justification here. Paul is already justified. Jesus justified him on the Damascus road when he met Jesus and placed his faith and trust in him. Justification is the miracle of a moment. So Paul is not talking about his justification. That's already settled. Now, several English translations will render this word as deliverance, as deliverance. Now, some believe that because the word can be rightly translated deliverance, that's an accurate way to translate that word, that Paul is referring to being delivered from imprisonment, or his desire uh, to to his desire that his stand and imprisonment for Christ be vindicated, and that he might be released, so that he is no longer having to suffer shame for being in prison. He's like, I'm hoping that I will be delivered from jail so that my testimony for Christ is not hindered. Because some of these guys are saying, hey, Paul's in jail. He must be doing this wrong. So some people believe that he's referring to being physically released from jail. Now, given the fact that he addresses his release in verses 21 through 26, this seems like it could be a valid interpretation. This word gets used this way in Acts chapter number 7. So this wouldn't be the only place in Scripture that this Greek word soteria gets used to describe a physical deliverance. Uh, but there are also several English translations that render this word as salvation, like it does in the one we're using this morning. And I believe that because this, uh, this is the way the word overwhelmingly gets used, Paul is not referring to his physical deliverance from jail. I believe he is referring to spiritual deliverance. I believe he is referring to the not yet, uh, the not yet completed work of his salvation. Now our salvation began at the moment we were justified, and our justification is a done deal. But our salvation is more than just our justification. It is an ongoing process. Romans 8 tells us we're still waiting for it to be completed. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying God is using all these difficulties to get me to the place where Jesus is going to complete my salvation. He's relying on the Philippians' prayers and ultimately the Holy Spirit to enable his faithfulness through his trial all the way up to the moment he meets Jesus. This is partly why he's rejoicing. He's like, I'm rejoicing because God is using all this difficulty, all this hardship, all this adversity to complete the work that he started in me. He believes God is going to answer the Philippians' prayer for his faithfulness. He believes. He says, I know. This isn't a, man, I hope you all pray enough, otherwise I'm not going to make it. This is a, I know you're praying and I know the Spirit is going to use your prayers to get me where he promised to get me. He's depending on the Holy Spirit strengthening to get him all the way to the end of his life. Uh, Dr. Thomas Constable said about this verse, Paul meant his imprisonment and the consequent preaching of the gospel from genuine motives and ungenuine motives were all a part of God's completion of the good work that he started in Paul. So this isn't Paul saying, man, I hope I make it. This is Paul saying, I know God is using this to get me there. I know God is using this to get me to that moment where my salvation is complete. God is using this all along this journey to grow me in my sanctification to get me to the point where I stand before Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying, all of this sorrow, all of this adversity is leading me to the moment God will complete what he started. And what I love about this is we, again, we see the connection between praying and the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, throughout the New Testament, you see the Holy Spirit moves. The Holy Spirit works in response to our prayers We pray and we invite other people to pray in accordance with the working of the Holy Spirit. This is why praying is so important. God uses our prayers to sustain not only our own faithfulness, but the faithfulness of those that we pray for. Basically what Paul is saying is like, I know your prayers for my faithfulness are working. I know your prayers are what's leading the Holy Spirit to enable me to stay strong and faithful in my walk with Him. Don't think your prayers don't matter one of the ways that God sustains and strengthens his servants is through the prayers of the saints. Throughout the scripture, we see the Holy Spirit moving in response to the prayers of the people of God. This is why Paul would so often ask for prayer. He told the Corinthians that God was using their prayers to help him in his great trials. He asked the Romans, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and the Thessalonians to all pray for him. These aren't just filler words that Paul uses to take up space in his epistles. He really genuinely believes that God uses the prayers of his people to provide strength for his servants. And so he says, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your prayers and the work of the spirit are leading towards my salvation, towards the completion of the good work that God started. Paul was confident that God was using all of these in the prayers of the Philippians, and he was confident that the Spirit was sustaining him. This is why he could rejoice, even though people were preaching in such a way to hurt him. Like, how messed up is that? But Paul knew, Paul knew, God is using this. This is a part of the plan, this is a part of the process of God completing his good work. And so, I rejoice. So we've seen Paul contrast people's motivations We see how and why he's making the decision to rejoice. And lastly, in verse number 20, Paul tells us about his eager expectation. He has an eager expectation. Look at verse number 20. He says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's goal was to courageously honor Christ in either life or in death. Now, at this point, remember, Paul doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he's getting released from jail or not. He was expecting and hoping that he would not be ashamed about being thrown into jail because he knew God was using it. He was going to boldly represent Jesus. He didn't care about his reputation. His critics were trying to shame him. His critics were trying to hurt his reputation. But Paul's like, I'm not going to be ashamed because I know that I'm in here for Jesus. And so I'm not worried about my reputation. I want to honor Jesus above all else to value him above all else. His desire was that he would be, that Jesus would be highly honored in Paul's living or in Paul's dying. This phrase, eager expectation, it means to watch with your head outstretched. It means your head's up, you're paying attention, you're eagerly looking, you're waiting in response for something. It's used throughout the New Testament to describe the way we eagerly await for our final salvation. Romans 8:19, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation. For God's Son to be revealed. Hebrews 9, 28, the Bible says, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. And so we see our, our salvation is not yet fully complete. God finished the work of it, but we're still waiting for parts of it to come to be. And this word that's used here, waiting, it means this eager expectation. Our heads are held high and we are looking. Paul says, my head is held high. I am eagerly awaiting for what Jesus is going to do. And I believe with every part of who I am that he can be honored in my living and he can be honored in my dying. Paul's eager expectation. As Paul looks ahead, he's waiting with this eager suspense. He's excited. And he has this hope. It's this sure, certain hope. The confident building type of hope. It's not the hope that we think of like, oh man, I hope the Dodgers beat the Giants. It's eager hope. It's sure hope. It's a belief. Even though he can't see it, he believes it with every part of who he is. He believes that whether he lives or dies, God's going to be glorified. Because God uses adversity to advance the gospel, and so I eagerly await whatever God has for me. What he most longs for is that Christ We'll be honored. Everything for Paul was about, the mag, uh, was about the magnification of Jesus because Jesus is worthy. Paul's like, Jesus is worthy of everything. And so the thing I want more than anything is that he would be glorified. It is my eager expectation. Setbacks were viewed through the lens of making Jesus known. Trials were viewed through the lens of proclaiming the good news of Jesus imprisonment was viewed through the lens of magnifying Jesus. Every new Roman guard that got chained to him was viewed through the lens of advancing the gospel. Even petty, envious preachers were viewed through the lens of preaching Christ. Life and death for Paul were both opportunities to serve this great end. That's why he said, this is my eager expectation. Paul didn't know what was going to happen to him. But he knew the one that was holding him. And because of that, he could rejoice And eagerly expect God to be glorified, whether he lived or died. Paul's like, I got a pros and cons list, and I got pros for living, and I got pros for dying, I've got cons for living, and I got cons for dying. But he's like, either way, my eager expectation is that Christ would be magnified. Our greatest joy in life is to know Jesus. And because we are in Christ, we, like Paul, have an unlimited supply of joy no matter what we face. Uh, in conclusion, John Bunyan was a 17th century English Puritan. Uh, after serving in the military, he actually became a tinker. He would make things, and um, he got saved shortly after that, and he would preach anytime he got the chance. He wasn't necessarily a preacher by uh, occupation, but anytime time he got the chance, he would preach. And in the day and age in which he lived in England, there was actually a little bit of religious tolerance that would let him preach, even though he was not a part of the official church of England. However, in 1660, that all changed, and now if you weren't a part of the official church of England, you couldn't preach, and this led to actually John Bunyan getting thrown into jail and arrested. He was in jail for three months, and he was told, if you stop preaching, we'll let you out, but Bunyan said, no, I'm not going to stop. How can I stop proclaiming Jesus? And so he wound up being in jail for over 12 years. And while he was in prison, he spoke pretty candidly about how difficult his time was. At one point, he wrote, being separated from his family was like pulling the flesh from his bones. It was so difficult and so hard. One of his daughters was blind. His wife had a miscarriage right after he got his jail sentence. It's a very, very difficult season. But in his time in prison, it actually served as a catalyst for his faith to grow. He wrote over 12 books while he was in prison, and one of them he wrote was called Prison Meditations. And he reflected in this book on how being in prison and this hardship actually grew his faith. Listen to what he wrote. He said, I am indeed in prison now in body, but my mind is free to study Christ and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirit tame, nor tie up God for me. My faith and hope they cannot lame. Above them all I shall be. How can Bunyan write so joyfully about such a tragic time in his life? Christ. But it wasn't just John Bunyan's faith that was affected. While he was in prison, like I said, he wrote over a dozen books that have helped countless people grow in their faith. The most popular of those books, of course, Pilgrim's Progress. We'll never know the impact that book has had on people's faith. Pastors have literally used that book to disciple other people. It's so rich in scripture. John Bunyan's faith, yes, his faith grew. But countless others' faith has also grown because in his imprisonment the gospel was advanced. They locked him up in order to stop the message But in locking him up, they served as a catalyst to get that message out. What is our only hope in life and death, Paul says? That we belong to God. And in that belonging, we find courage. In that belonging, we find strength. In that belonging, we see the gospel advanced and the mission of God move forward. In that belonging, we find hope, love, and joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we belong to you. And that even though we face difficulties, even though we face adversity, Lord, we thank you that nothing can stop your mission. Nothing can hinder the work that you're doing in our hearts. Nothing can hinder the work that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through our own adversity and our own troubles and our own difficulties, that we would remember Not even death can hinder the work that you want to do in us and through us. I pray that you'd give us the the faith, the courage, and the strength to live in a way that reflects and demonstrates that belief. We ask this in your name. Amen.